It's a privilege um, to share this morning, and um, let's just pray. Jesus, I thank you that you are building your church. I thank you that you are the head of the church, that you're at work, that you're at work in us and through us, and we just declare again that this body of people, uh, we are yours. And we pray this morning, come and have your way. I thank you, Holy Spirit, that you uh, lead us into all truth. God, I pray for my ability to communicate what's on your heart. And uh, more than that, I pray for the ears of those that have to decipher it. Um, that, uh, that your words would go forth today. And, uh, thank you for your presence here. Thank you for your incredible time of worship. And uh, we just bless your name and worship you, Jesus. Amen. Wasn't it a great time of worship? It was good. Thanks, Fiona. It's, uh, Different people bring different things, and it's just awesome to see the body at work. All right, so we're going to sort of kick off kind of three weeks talking about, uh, uh, I'm going to share this week, and Kate's going to share the week after, and Steve's going to share on whatever he likes <laughs> on the third week um, when we're in City Mission. Um, but uh, we're going to talk today about um, uh, fatherhood and sonship, the father heart of God. So we're going to explore, and uh, forgive me for reading, or we'll all get lost. Uh, today we're going to explore and unpack our identity as children of God and what it looks like to walk forward as Christians, understanding who we really are. So we're going to talk about sonship, and we're going to talk about God as our Father. And in the interest of clear communication, I'm referencing sons as a generally gender-neutral term. And uh, I'll just address the ladies in the room for a moment. If we have to be the bride of Christ and put on a frock, a frock... A dress? What? Frock? Where did that come from? A gown, a bridal gown. If we have to do that thing, <laughs> then, uh, then, then you ladies, we can, we can get a little bit uh, masculine today, if that's cool. So when I say sons, I'm saying daughters. Um, you know what I mean. So if we have to do all that mushy stuff, um, we all be lumped together. So I was thinking about this and praying about this and really felt it was on God's heart today. And perhaps having a true and accurate revelation of our sonship and adoption might be one of the most significant keys to walking into all that Jesus has for us. And along with that, perhaps one of our society's greatest challenges and the root of much of the hurt that we see around us is found in a breakdown of security and identity through the breakdown of family and fathering. Ugh. We're surrounded by orphans. In many ways, all of us are affected by this to some degree. Some of us deeply. For some of us, our fathers were um, totally absent. For some, they were stolen from us too soon. And perhaps for some, just the word father or dad conjures up a world of pain through disappointment or abuse. And for lots of us, our earthly fathers were amazing, and they still are. Even so, they can never measure up to the ultimate father. The orphan spirit is, coin this phrase, the orphan spirit, is something that affects us all in some way. For all of us, to varying degrees, at times, our earthly experience of fathering and sonship has this overlay. It has this, it's superimposed on the way that we see and relate to God. And this, this invades the world. where The world sees God as impersonal, as uncaring, sometimes mean, totally unrelatable. Um, we call him, or the world calls him, the big man in the sky to separate him. Or uh, the bloke upstairs. Or perhaps they just... Uh, I think he's far too big to connect with in any way. And much of the world deals with this by simply making him not exist. And then go looking for that acceptance 
and wholeness everywhere and anywhere but. So they say you should put a bit of yourself in when you speak. So I realised a long time after I got saved that this was affecting me in some way. And one of the things I do battle with as a Christian at times is a chronic tendency towards self-sufficiency. I can do it myself. I think we all uh, resonate with that to some degree. And there are so many times when I go to the Father after I've tried and failed to figure it out myself instead of going to him in the first place. Do we relate? Um, In the church I was in about seven or eight years ago in Sydney, we were exploring this whole concept of uh, understanding and overcoming an orphan spirit. And the reason I need to do it myself occurred to me. See, I had an amazing dad, um, but he was tragically killed in an accident a few weeks before I turned nine. So the anniversary is about now, 29 years ago, and I still miss him. But I was totally blessed after that to have a range of father figures step in and in particularly able to thank my grandfather in his last days a few years ago for what he did for me and us. Uh, He retired early to help my mum and uh, took me and my brother and my sister on and I thanked him on that day that I never felt like I missed out on anything. Nan and Pop took us on holidays with them. Pop and I built all sorts of stuff in the shed. We turned old chainsaws into go-karts and (laughs) tore up the paddock and all those kind of manly things and he kicked me up the bum when I needed kicking. And for all of that, I'm grateful to Jesus, but he's gone too now. I realised that at times I'd hold out on God and not go to him first because my earthly experience told me that God might suddenly not be there one day. It's crazy to think about it now, it's insane. But Jesus set me free of that and in a pretty snotty moment and and every day he's teaching me to trust him and lean into him more. And in some ways our earthly fathering issues carry into the church. We set up these systems of hierarchy that place other people between God and us. We're constantly looking to a person. We have to have Pastor Bob. Pastor Bob has all the answers. And we try to make him our path to the Father. Or we're after the latest conference speaker or the latest author or book writer or some celebrity Christian who knows it all. Uh, And we know them intimately because we follow their Instagram feed. We're constantly looking for some flesh and blood here on earth that we can grab a hold of and idolise. Why do we do that? Jesus won't share the glory. He is the head of the church and who we must look to. And the Catholic Church took this all the way such that we can't even take our own sin to the Father. We better have some other bloke in a dark room behind a shutter take it for us. It's crazy. And we hear about this concept of the God-shaped hole that we're all looking to fill. And I put it to you that it's a Father-shaped hole that only our Heavenly Father can fill. Fortunately to all of this, and we're going to open some scripture, I promise. Fortunately to all of this, there is an awesome answer. So let's get into it. Hopefully the answer will be shorter than the intro. (laughs) So from the beginning, we were created by God in His image. So open your Bible to Genesis. We're going to do the whole Bible this morning. I'm living dangerously. I haven't copied the uh, scriptures into my notes. So I'm going to look them up as we go. Huh. <laughs> Genesis 1.26 says this, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And some other things after that. Our image. Our likeness. I want you to notice the our at the very <laughs> centre of us as created beings. 
God's intent for us was a Trinity-like intimate relationship with him. Similar relationship that the Father, Son and Holy Spirit have. A perfect, blameless, unhindered, pure Father and Son relationship. That was what he created. That was his intent at the beginning. He created man and woman to have a perfect relationship with, with each other. And notice through uh, all the creation story, at the end of every thing that he makes, he says it is good, and then he creates woman, and he says it's very good. <laughs> Let's go to Genesis 2.24. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. The word one here is a Hebrew word, ekad, I don't know if I've pronounced that right, it doesn't really matter, which is the same word used to describe God in Deuteronomy 6.4, which says the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Fundamentally, we were cre created to have relationship with each other and with the Father in the same way and with the same depth that the Trinity has relationship with one another. Now, I know none of this is new to most of us, but understanding the original design and the problem We'll give the solutions we'll talk about shortly uh, more foundation and power. Like I said, we're going through the whole Bible. And I was preparing this and I got to the end of it and went, hang on, that's just the gospel. I thought, well, that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> so the root of the problem, the root of this separation is the fall. And we all know this. It was perfect till Adam and Eve stuffed it up. And the sin that broke the perfect bond between the father and his children. A choice was made that broke the bond and left us orphaned from our Heavenly Father. So if we go to Genesis 3, 9 to 10. We've read all of this before. But it says this. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? Just an aside, God knew where he was. I think he was asking Adam for Adam's benefit. <laughs> so he said, and hear this, I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and hid myself. So they've eaten the forbidden fruit. The Lord is wandering the garden, calling for Adam, who says, I heard your voice and I was afraid. And here is the first description in the Bible of mankind's broken relationship with the Father. Fear had entered in. Separation and fear. Because of the choice, we're left orphaned. Fortunately, there's a solution. Though we were orphaned, our Heavenly Father stopped at nothing to ensure we could be adopted again as sons and daughters. So what we're talking about today is moving from orphans to being adopted. So from that time until today, our story with God has been about resolving this problem and restoring that bond. God in his desire to get back to the relationship with us that he first created, fathering us with perfection and our repeated stupidity in running from and avoiding his invitation because we're acting as orphans. We're acting from an orphan spirit. God desires to adopt us completely again and bring us back into the fullness that this father and son relationship offers us. Now, fortunately, because of all this, the Bible has an awful lot to say about it, so much so that I was at a bit of a loss to know where we'd fit this all into 30 minutes. Let's go to Psalm 68. Need a bigger lectern. When you've got it, say, got it. Oh. I'm the slow one this morning. Short scripts are 68.5 and the first part of 6. A father to the fatherless, a defender of widows, is God in his holy habitation. God sets the solitary in families. Let's go to John 14, 12 to 21. 
Every time I look at something in the Gospels, I can hear my daughter saying, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, hold the horse while I get on. I don't know where that comes from. <laughs> John fourteen twelve says, Most assuredly I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do, because I go to my Father. And whatever you ask in my name that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Uh, verse 15, if you love me, keep my commandments. And I will pray the Father and he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever. The spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells in you and will be in you. Verse 18, I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. Verse 19, a little while longer and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you will live also. At that day, you will know me and know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. He who keeps my commandments, he who, who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Let's flick over to Romans 8. And then we're going to unpack all this a bit. Romans 8 verse 12. Let's go from 12. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not, according, not, uh, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you will put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear. We talked about fear before. But you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. Let's flick over to Ephesians 1.5. It says this, Having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. So to help us understand our sonship and the significance of our adoption, I think it helps us to understand adoption in Roman culture as Paul would have seen it. Understanding our inheritance in that culture and what it means. Uh, adoption in our culture is kind of a plan B. It's like a, a second-hand thing. It's what you do when the other doesn't work out. But uh, in Roman culture, it's not a second-class adoption. It's not a consolation prize as we see it in our culture. So let's have a look at that. And I was going to paraphrase this book and you do some research and take some stuff out of it and I thought, you know what? I'm just going to read it. So this is from a book called Orphans to Heirs by Mark Stribb. All right, hang with me. It is now commonly agreed that the Roman right of adoption lies behind Paul's thinking. So how did the Romans adopt children? In what follows, I will paint a picture of one common adoption scenario in the Roman world of Jesus' day. So imagine this scene. Oh, lights on. We are in ancient Rome, around about the year 50 BC. You are a Roman citizen with a beautiful wife called Maximilia. Forgive the male perspective here. You have been married about five years and you've been trying to have children. And pretty soon it's become clear that, you are, that one of you is infertile and that your family name, so precious in Roman culture, 
is not going to be perpetuated unless you have a son. So together you make the decision to adopt. So you look first of all to your own household, to the slaves who serve you. There you find a slave called Marcus, who has a wife and four children, three of them are boys. You go to Marcus and you ask whether he would be prepared to sell one of his boys for adoption. And after a long consideration, Marcus says, yes. So why do Marcus and his wife agree to do this? First and foremost, because it means that their son becomes a free man. The precarious and oppressive life of slavery is over. Secondly, because it means that their son will inherit the family name of their master and in the process become heirs of the household. Does this sound familiar? He will become the master's very own heir and will inherit the master's entire estate. Thirdly, because it means that all the adopted son's previous debts will be cancelled on joining his new family. Sounds very familiar. What may seem like a heartless act to us, the sale of a son, is therefore an act of kindness. So the whole adoption process begins. You go with Marcus and the boy to the local Roman magistrate, proceedings known as adoptio sensus strictu, an adoption ceremony. Why, why do we do this? Uh, begin with all of you standing before the magistrate. Three times the natural father sells the boy to the new father and on each occasion the magistrate watches as the boy is passed from one to the other. After the third transaction, the magistrate makes the declaration, this boy is now your adopted son. The money passes hands from the adopting father to the natural father and the boy is now legally adopted. He is now legally the new father's son and heir coming under their family authority. He has been taken out from under the family authority of Marcus the slave and placed under the new fatherly authority. The boy now has the status of a free person. All previous debts are cancelled. The boy has a new family and a new future. When we think of the Roman right of adoption from our contemporary perspective, it's all too easy to regard Marcus as a callous man and, in the, and the whole ritual as somewhat unloving. In reality, however, seen within its own cultural context, the whole business is an act of emancipation. The boy has no privileges or opportunities has been delivered from an often dangerous life of servitude and given the full rights of a wealthy son. The Apostle Paul was not only a Jewish rabbi and a Christian apostle, he was also a Roman citizen. When the Holy Spirit began to reveal to him the great mystery of God's love in Christ, one of the images that came to his mind was that of Roman adoption. On five occasions in his letters, Paul therefore employed this picture in order to portray the wonderful truth that we have been delivered from slavery into sonship. There's a comparison here, a couple of pages over. And there's a few other scriptures here, but uh, Galatians 4, 4 to 5. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law, that we might receive adoption. So in Roman adoption, a father chooses to adopt a son. Our Abba Father decides to adopt us. The Roman adopted son is a slave, and we are slaves spiritually. The adopting father pays for his new son. Our adoption is paid for through the blood of Christ. The adopted son is set free from slavery. At our adoption, we are given glorious freedom. The adopted son comes out from under his father's authority. The new believer is delivered from Satan's authority. The magistrate declares the boy to be adopted as a son. Our father declares, you are my beloved son and daughter. 
He's placed under the, under the authority of his new father and we come under the God the Father's authority. He has a new family. We join the family of the kingdom of God. He becomes an heir and we become co-heirs with Christ. All previous debts are cancelled and the debt of sin is paid for and we start afresh. And the boy learns to call his new father Abba and we cry out Abba to God. I'm going to get a little bit sidetracked here. Looking back at Romans 8 again, I just want to make a few comments about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which occurred to me at about 3 o'clock this morning. So this is not very well formed. And it occurred to me that baptism through the Romans 8 lens that we read before of the Holy Spirit is primarily, primarily for, baptism in the Holy Spirit is primarily for the purpose of sealing our adoption, for securing in the deepest part of our spirit that we are children of God. We've done it a disservice, perhaps, by making it all about the manifestations of the Spirit, about gifts or speaking in tongues. When we look at the fruit of the baptism, we look at the fruit of the baptism of the Spirit as the evidence that it has happened. Yes, these things do happen and they're awesome, but they are an outworking of the fact that we are adopted sons. We now have the full and unrestricted inheritance from the Father that comes with that. We are co-heirs with Christ through spiritual adoption. The manifestations are a fruit of our sonship. We are not sons just because we can prophesy or speak in tongues of other angels, etc. We have access to these awesome things because we are sons of God and we have that inheritance. We are not sons just because we can do these things. They are not proof, they are fruit. Just another gift from a perfect father. And Romans 8 says, The Spirit testifies to our adoption. All right, so, are we all okay? <laughs> I think I'm okay. How do we move from orphans to adopted sons? Well, we need to understand what the father is really like by not looking to our own earthly father figures, but by looking to the ultimate father. How do we know what the father is really like? No prizes for guessing. We look at Jesus the son. And somehow we always end up back at Jesus, and I hope that never changes. God desired so much to reveal his nature to us that he became man among us as someone we could see and relate to. He became God with skin on. So if we go back to John 14, verse 7. Oh, fluke. The Father revealed. I love this. If you had known me, this is Jesus speaking to his disciples. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And from now on, you know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is sufficient for us. <laughs> Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me? Philip, he who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these he will do because I go to my Father. And whatever you ask in my name that I will do, that my Father may be glorified in the Son, if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. I love Jesus' exasperation here because it's something I can relate to. 
He's saying to his disciples, not as Jesus, as his disciples, by the way. <laughs> I can relate to that. He's saying to his disciples in a frustrated tone, you pack of knuckleheads. You keep asking what the Father is like. And here I am. I'm right here in front of you. I connect with this as a fellow knucklehead. So to understand the Father, we just have to look to Jesus. And in saying that, I'm saying this. We need to stop looking at everything and everyone else. Everything else will disappoint. Jesus will never disappoint. You haven't been adopted by the latest celebrity preacher, by the latest podcast. You haven't been adopted by a great book. You haven't been adopted by Russ or me. Trust me, we'll disappoint you. I'm probably disappointing you right now. No. You, you won't even find your security in a church or in the building it meets in. You won't find it in your family. You won't find it in your earthly father. You won't find it in your friends. And you certainly won't find it in your house or your money or your stuff. You'll find it in Jesus. You won't find it in the arts or in music. You won't find it in your education, the stuff you know or how clever you are. It's not found in your job. What you do is not who you are. The only place you'll find your security and wholeness is in your adoption as a child of God. And the only path to that adoption is through Jesus. And it happens supernaturally. The spirit of adoption by whom we cry, Abba, Father, the Holy Spirit seals this transaction that takes place in the deepest part of our spirit. He testifies with our spirit that we are adopted children of the Most High God. You are who the Father says you are. You are not the sum of things spoken over you and about you. You are not a product of your circumstances. You are not left as orphans. You are not a product of your upbringing and your environment. Jesus says over you, this is my son whom I love or daughter. With you I am well pleased. Our father is not in a bad mood. His mercy triumphs over judgment. You are his son and daughter who he loves. He's pleased with you. You are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Let's go to one last story in Mark 2, the story of the paralytic man. From the beginning, and again he entered Capernaum after some days, and it was heard that he was in the house. Immediately many gathered together, so that there was no longer room to receive them, not even near the door. And he preached the word to them. Then they said to him, bringing a paralytic man who was carried by four men. And when they could not come near him because of the crowd, they uncovered the roof where he was. This is cool. So when they had broken through, they let down the bed on which the paralytic was lying. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, what? Son. Your sins are forgiven you. So there's the obvious in front of Jesus. Guy can't walk. He's laying on a bed and he's been lowered through the, rife, uh, through, through the roof to get to his feet. But what does he deal with first? Son. Your sins are forgiven you. Deals with his identity and he deals with sin. 
And then after that, because of that, commands him to get up and walk and we know the rest of the story. Let's wrap it up. Adoption. Orphan sons are defeated. Adopted sons are more than conquerors. We'll leave it there. Holy Spirit, I thank you that you're at work. And Lord, those of us in this room, me included, that uh, wrestle with this concept at times, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would minister to the deepest part of who we are. You minister into our spirit. We invite you right now to come and seal the fact that we are adopted as sons of the Most High God and we are co-heirs with Christ. Everything of the kingdom is ours because of our adoption to you. And more than that, if there's anyone here this morning that has no idea what we're talking about, has never met this Jesus we're on about, but feels lonely, left, deserted, doesn't know where to look, God, I pray in this moment that you would seal, as we repent and come before you, that you would seal our adoption. Thank you for your goodness. I thank you that you're a good, good father. Lord, teach us your ways. Teach us how good you are. Show us your mercy and your glory. You're so faithful. You're so good. And worship you. Amen.